1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews with a session entitled, An Addendum.
0: Father, we praise you for the evening. We thank you that you have brought us together. We know that there are no accidents in your kingdom, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. So, Father, we invite you to be with us. We pray, Father, that you just open our hearts and lives to your word guide our thoughts, that in all these things we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities before us as we commit ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, well we are in session 14 of 16 total, session 14, exploring the epistle to the Hebrews. And... um, Last time we were in chapter 12, we will go to the final chapter next week, but I thought it would be appropriate, of course, to backtrack and do some uh, little groundwork here. You may recall last time we encountered near the end of chapter 12, verse 22, it says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, he's speaking prophetically. That's where they're headed. But these are three labels for something very special for a city. The city isn't the city that's in front of them then. It's actually an allusion to the new, to a, a Jerusalem that's coming. And this really is a the author's way of alluding to the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, as we call it. And that's been all through this letter so far. In chapter 1, three times. In the first 11 verses of chapter 4. In chapter 6, with all its troubling issues, that was also mentioned. Uh, It's mentioned three times in chapter 10, and of course comes up here in chapter 12 through 28. um, And we encountered last time. I thought it would be appropriate for us to try to pull together the illusions that we made along the way, and maybe fill in some others. So some of this will be review, some of this may be new to you. The pervasive mention of the city. Jesus spoke about the city where he is now preparing a place for us. Paul spoke of the Jerusalem of God as being a city that is free and not in bondage, in Galatians 4. This is the city that Abraham sought. And that was alluded to in the Hall of Faith in in Hebrews 11. And uh, the writer will mention it again in chapter 13. So I wanted us to focus on this idiomatic use of Jerusalem in a very special way. John describes the city as the abode of all the redeemed for all time, uh, who enter it by the resurrection at the rapture, or translation, if you will. And the, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, the writer uses that very in- interesting phrase here, which are written in heaven, and to, the, to God the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the just men made perfect." This is a review from last time. The General Assembly. The term in the Greek actually implies a festive gathering. Church of the Firstborn. Strange phrase to use. This is an allusion. He's writing... To, let's, let's remember something else. Very fundamental to understand this letter. This letter he's writing to Jewish Christians. These are not Jewish unbelievers. These are Jew- Jews that are justified by the blood of Christ, but that are stymied in their spiritual growth. And his whole passion from the first verse to the last verse is for them to move on to spiritual maturity. But uh, he's, he's speaking of them as the, the church or the assembly of the firstborn. That's he's, he's, just, he's using the phrase the same way James does, in terms of Jews being the first fruits. And... Uh, uh, and to the spirits of just men. And it's interesting, he calls them spirits. Why? Because they're not, the ones that have passed on are not yet united with their bodies. They're in the bosom of Abraham. Uh, And because the resurrection of the Old Testament saints has not yet taken place. In fact, most scholars believe that the resurrection of the Old Testament saints isn't until the second coming. In contrast to those that are dead in Christ that raptured at least seven years, maybe more, prior to that point. So there's... Those subtleties are uh, included in the, 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 the subtleties of the language here. And it should be noted, noted then that the author here is making a clear distinction between the Old Testament saints and the church saints in, in these allusions. Wherefore we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably and with reverence and godly fear. And this going into the fifth of the five warnings. Wherefore we? See, he, the writer is putting himself in the same category as his readers. Wherefore we? So, if the writer is indeed Paul, as we believe it is, um, he, he's, he's putting himself in the same uh, categorization as his listeners. Receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace and so forth. Uh, the millennial messianic kingdom will give way and usher in a new order. And that's what we want to talk a little bit about tonight. Let us have grace. And again, he always hammers grace. Did you realize that Paul's the only writer that does? We'll talk about that, especially next time. Five major warnings we've gone through. And I'm not going to repeat the details here other than just the danger of drifting was in chapter 2. The danger of disobedience in chapter 3. Failing to mature, which is the main thrust of the whole uh, epistle. But in chapter 5, the dangers of willful sin in a special sense in chapter 10. And then finally, just the danger of indifference, the danger of indifference, in, in his fifth warning. And the main thrust, these five parenthetical warnings are not incidental to the main theme, they are the reason for the entire epistle. And great, it, Paul's, Paul's passion is that great loss awaits those who fail to persevere. Loss of their salvation? No. Loss of reward, big difference loss of reward and honor in Christ's coming kingdom. We need to understand the differences. The revelation goes, Behold, I come quickly. Jesus says, Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. What's that all about? We want to talk about that tonight a little bit. So our agenda is we're going to talk, we're going to once again put in focus so there's no misunderstanding the paradigm of salvation, past, present, and future. What does it mean? We want to touch on eternal security and the difference between justification, sanctification, inheritance and in Paul's paranoia. We've talked about these things in the past, but I think it's important to get these in focus before we move into some of the topics tonight. And you might call, if you want a title for tonight, it's Thy Kingdom Come. We the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy Kingdom Come. What on earth does that mean? We pray that, don't we? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy Kingdom Come. What does that mean? Isn't, isn't that kingdom come already? Apparently not. What is he talking about? And we're going to talk a little bit about the Davidic covenant, an overlooked covenant to many. Everybody knows the Abrahamic covenant, indeed. Every one of our benefits derive from the Abrahamic covenant. But uh, another of the unconditional covenants was the Davidic covenant. We want to understand that. And we'll talk a little bit about the kingdom events and what does it mean to be an overcomer. Rodemakers is fond of saying, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. What does he mean? Past tense, present tense, future tense. Past tense. We call that justification. 100% done by Jesus Christ. You can't add to it. To try to add to it is blasphemy. It's a gift of God, of everlasting life, received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That was the manner that led to the Reformation. That truth is the driving truth for all of us. Being justified. Our passport is stamped innocent, not guilty. We may not have changed yet, but if we've accepted Christ, we are declared guilty. We're justified. Okay? That's in the past, hopefully. If anyone hasn't accepted Christ, I want to talk to you. Come see me when we're through here. Now, most of us are a work in progress. We're not, God isn't finished with any of us. And that's, we call that Sanctification. That's a progressive work that involves faith and the works of the believer. We're not saved by those works. Those works testify to the fact that God is working in us and that we're in a, we're a work in progress. The future tense is glorification. And so that's a result of the previous two steps. And all believers will be glorified. That's what Roman. That's the most amazing thing about Romans 8. It's usually quoted to... to, to uh, Exemplify justification. No, it's even even glorification. We are, were we're des- destined to be uh, uh, to to be uh, receive a, a resurrection body, but not all be equal. That's the part we want to get into here. Past tense justification, separate from, separation from the penalty of sin. You're in Christ. You have you're no longer declared guilty. Present tense separation from the power of sin. There's no reason for a Christian today to sin because he can call upon the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever, that's not true, he is in bondage to sin, but the believer is not. He may stumble, he may fail to invoke those resources, but that's, but that's that's the glorious aspect of the first seven chapters of the Epistle of Romans deals with. And the future tends to separation from the very presence of sin, and that happens after a thousand years. In a special way. Past tense justification, present tense sanctification, future tense glorification. We generally, in the the institute, we have the students avoid using the word salvation because it's ambiguous. What do you mean by salvation? Well, I was saved from alcoholism last year or something. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about soteriological salvation. I was saved from a burning building. No, the salvation we're talking about here is being from the pit of hell. So there's the three past, pre, pre, past, present, and future senses of salvation. Now why am I getting into that? Because I want to anchor, without getting into a whole lengthy study here, the eternal security issue. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner, makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin, but sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. So that's the distinctives there. Now, around this whole area, we have several views. For 400 years or more, there's been a theological war between the Calvinists and the Arminius. Calvinism is typically typified by the five points of Calvinism. Not all Calvinists embrace all five, so I won't take the time on that. The key one is this whole idea that if you're a true believer, you'll persevere to the end. And uh, Perseverance thus becomes the test of reality. That's why sometimes a theologian will call this viewpoint experimental predestinarian. Yes, you're predestinated. How do you tell if you've been predestinated? Well, you wait to get to the end. If you've persevered, then you are predestinated. Well, That, that doesn't give you assurance, does it? So that's, it fails in that sense. This effectively denies the assurance of salvation because proof is always in the future. And so it's not very—it's not satisfactory from that point of view. The Armenian goes the other way around. He says justification can be lost because these believers are in danger of losing their salvation as a result of sinful behavior. That's their approach. And uh, so they believe that the believer's eternal security rests in Christ's work, indeed, and, and the individual—the individual's decision to continue in faith and not fall away. So that to the Armenian, you can lose your justification. Works play a key role in retaining salvation. That means suddenly your, your eternal destiny derives from your, your works, your perseverance. And uh, now, are, these are both strangely similar. Both views acknowledge that Christ's completed work is absolutely essential. Both acknowledge the importance of works in the life of the believer. Both, uh, so they both are correct in what they assert. They're both wrong in what they deny. Although the direct opposition between these two views has endured for between four and five, I guess, 500 years, but they both are very close to the Roman Catholic view, is that that emphasizes works as the basis as salvation. Now, so you've got the Calvinism, eternal security, but conditioned upon completing uh, the persever- perseverance, of the sake, and, it's mo- and this would be classified as the experimental. Predestinarians. Yes, you're predestinated, but you can't tell until you get there. Okay. Armenian. only those that persevere to the end are saved. These two views are what populate most theological libraries, supporting one or the other. There is a view between these two that is has been widely overlooked by many authors. And that is the whole view of what we'll call the partakers or the overcomers. This view emphasizes eternal security in the sense of justification because your security in Christ is entirely in His hands and His Father's hands. But there is a distinction drawn by this, this view between entering heaven and inheriting. Entering and inheriting. And, and in other words, the variation of rewards. And we're going to focus on that a little bit tonight. And just that we could spend the whole evening... Pulling out verses that support the eternal security issue, I'm going to just pick one pair. In John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's quite a statement. If you've accepted Christ, you are now his responsibility, is what he's saying. He goes on, he says, my father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. As you read John 10, you may miss the fact there are two hands involved. I usually like to gesture this way. Can I get out if I tried? My answer is, I don't think so. And I'm going to paraphrase Walter Martin's quip that if if you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God. Butterfingers. That's perhaps a little irreverent way of expressing it, but it makes the point. If you have accepted Christ, you are now his responsibility. He's able to brag to his Father in John 17, Of all that you've given me, I have lost none. He makes the footnote, exception of Judas, of course. He, uh, in fact, he, in, that, in that famous prayer in John 17, he hands that responsibility to the Father. So that's, gives, that gives rise to this view. So we're talking about justification, salvation here. If you have accepted Christ, you are secure because of what he did, 100%. You can't add to what he did. But Paul, just to take another verse from a different point of view, makes a very strange statement. He makes many statements like this. I've just picked one of a series. But let's, he says, Paul says, but I keep my, under my body and bring it into subjection lest... That by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Strange phrase. Here's Paul. He wrote 14 of the books of the New Testament. He, uh, He wrote the book on eternal security called Romans 8 and others. What's he afraid of losing? His salvation? No. No. But lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. We need to understand what he's talking about here. Because it affects every one of us. While on the one hand we can be secure in Christ in terms of being assured of entering heaven, there is an inheritance that God has set aside for us that we can forfeit if we are not faithful. And we categorize all that under a topic of rewards. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, you may recall, a very key verse... It says, For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. For we are made partakers. This in, this is a very key word. It's the metakoi in the in the Greek. One who shares in more than just a companion. He's a comrade, a partner in a work, office, or dignity. Metakoi. Are we metakoi? If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, there is an essential aspect of perseverance to the end. In other words, what this is saying that our behavior matters. Our behavior prior to being saved does not. That's been paid for, stamped, done. But from that point on, we start a report card. And there's a key word here: if if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, that's the name of the game, that's what we're going to call here shortly, being an overcomer, not being overtaken, want we'll to talk about entering versus inheriting, if I invite you into my home, that allows you to enter my house, doesn't allow you to rearrange the furniture, when, when Dan and I arrive in Florida tomorrow, we'll sign in in a hotel, that gives us a room, an access, a place to use, a place to be, great, we do, I don't think we inherit the hotel. Unless we're Paris Hilton or something, right? Entering and inheriting are not the same thing. Entering heaven and inheriting what's there for you are two different things. And so this is, summarizes that. Inheritance, privileges will be widely variable. Every one of us in this room that have accepted Christ, we, we will be together in heaven. But once we're there, we may discover a surprising divergence of benefits while we're there based on our walk. And so that's what we want to talk about a little bit. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's nothing, by the way, more certain than this. But what does it mean? What on earth is this kingdom is talking about here? That leads me to another set of terms that I'm going to badger a little bit because I think it's... a it's. I have to tell you, through most of my ministry, I have accepted the presumption of most commentators that there are two terms that are equivalent. And I'm reminded of a of a situation in optics. Those of you that have had any interest in astronomy know what I'm talking about when I talk about resolving power. You get a cheap telescope and look at a star, and you see a star. But you spend a lot of money and get a really good. Telescope, expensive telescope, and you look at that same star, and you discover it's a double star. The ability of the optics to resolve two things more clearly is called resolving power. It actually follows a mathematical formula. It's a measure of quality of optics called the resolving power. The same thing is true in language, and there are two terms that most people think are synonyms, and that's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And you'll find most commentators assume that the writers of the Gospels use are referring to the same thing. And I thought I accepted that for many, many years, but suspiciously. And I, I've now come to the conclusion for a variety of reasons that these are not the same thing. The kingdom of God, of course, is everything that's outside God himself. That creation precedes the earth, the universe. Within that category is a subset called the kingdom of heaven. There are 739 references in the New Testament to heaven. Only Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. He does it 33 times. And most commentators figure, well, he was Jewish. That was just his choice. It was just a linguistic choice. And I've learned over my 60 years of study that I, every time, all through those 60 years, I've come across things that I had to change my view. Had a, I learned a little more and made it a little more. Every time I've had to change my view, it's always been in the direction of being more specific, more literal than before. Some say, well, that's just, well Matthew just used that term. No, five times Matthew uses the term kingdom of God. There's one place where he uses it adjacent to each other. And some people use that art. Well, that proves they're synonyms. No, it doesn't. It proves the opposite. He is being more denotative than his forebears. Because Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, and John, for many similar incidents, use kingdom of God. That doesn't exclude the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew, by being more precise, is highlighting something more specific. He uses the term kingdom seven times and his and father's and thy kingdom uh, uh, five additional times. So Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. He's emphasizing that. And one of the things that we're called to do is rightly divide the word of truth. Well, kingdom of God, what are we talking about? That's beyond visibility. It includes angels long before the earth was created, cherubim and so forth. It began prior to the earth. It's inclusive of everything God has created plus some. Kingdom of heaven is a little different, it turns out. It's physical. It's physical. It has locality. In fact, we do well to note the difference between in in both Hebrew and German, the word of and the word from is the same word. If I'm von Habsburg, that means I'm from Habsburg or I'm of Habsburg. This is the kingdom from heaven. And so could and, and would probably be helpful if that's the way it was translated. In any case, it's physical, it has locality. It involves mankind only. It is a political institution. We'll see that in Daniel chapter 2. It has a capital. It's called Jerusalem. It has a palace. We're going to look at the floor plan of that palace. It was usurped. It's destined to be regained according to Matthew 11. Back in Daniel chapter 2, you may recall that's a chapter where Daniel is interpreting the strange dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which turns out to be a metal image that represents all the different kingdoms forthcoming on the planet Earth. And Daniel not only recounts that dream, he explains what it means, Daniel chapter 2. By the time you get to verse 44, we discover that these four main kingdoms, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay, that these are all going to be replaced by a new kingdom. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Clearly, Daniel understood, and his listeners understood, that was a kingdom like the predecessors. Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, these are kingdoms. God's going to set up his that's going to replace all those, right? Okay. This whole saga, as I was trying to figure out how do I summarize this in just one session, it's really a study that that could take uh, many sessions. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite psalms. It describes a cosmic war and it lays out the whole story.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.